Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. And let me give you just a little, very brief introduction of what we're going to try to do the whole quarter. Uh, We're primarily this quarter going to look at uh, the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalms that were written by David. And the idea is going to be to try to read them in their historical context so we can learn how to become a person of prayer more like King David was. Okay, so there's the overarching goal. This morning is more about way of introduction. We're going to do a lot in uh, 1 Samuel. And this is just addendum. Like if you want a little extra and you want to go deeper, there's a book in the Briarwood Bookstore, and I think they're selling it at a discount. It's called Bible Crawling. And the whole idea is taking a psalm a day, learning how to pray it, journal it, meditate on it in such a way to really go deep. So that will kind of go along with what we're doing this quarter. If you want to get a copy of that, you don't have to. You can just show up and listen, and it'll be fine. So, but today, uh, introduction we're going to really do a compare and contrast between King Saul and King David. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, and let's start in verse 8. This is speaking about King Saul. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, and Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now, I'm I'm assuming that most of us have some understanding of the kind of history of Saul and David, so we're just going to kind of hit some of the highlights or maybe the lowlights this morning. Not going to necessarily read everything, but a little bit of context here. King Saul was appointed the king mainly to defeat the enemies of Israel. That was kind of his main goal. Samuel was the prophet, and so the idea was, hey, go here, wait seven days, I'll show up. I'm the one that offers the sacrifices. I need to do that first to get the Lord's blessing. Then you go into battle. And we don't know exactly. Uh, Certainly Samuel did not show up early. Uh, It seems like he probably came at the very last minute. Just side note, how many many times in our lives when we're praying, waiting, looking for God to do something, does it almost seem like God likes to stretch it out to the last possible moment? It almost seems like a game and not a very fun game. Uh, But he's often trying to test us and stretch our faith. And Saul fails the test. Why? He's fearful. I mean, what we're going to see, the pattern we're going to look at is he sees my men are starting to get scared. They hear the Philistines coming. We're not ready for battle. We haven't prayed yet. The prophet's not here to bless us. The men are starting to flee. They're scared. I'm scared. Oh, well, I'll make myself do this. When you make decisions based in sinful fear, it never goes well for you. And that's what he does, and it's not going to be good. And notice, he doesn't really have a humble, broken, contrite, repentant attitude. He has much more of an attitude of, but I've got a great excuse. 
right? And aren't we all experts at that? That goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. I've got a great explanation for why I disobeyed exactly what you told me to do, God. And God doesn't seem to like our excuses very much, okay? It's very understandable. We can, we can all kind of be compassionate with Him, and yet it's still sin. Flip over to chapter 15. This was not a one-time incident in Saul's life. 1 Samuel 15, let's start in verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, I know that places like this in the Old Testament where it basically seems like God is saying go commit genocide against this city can be very problematic for us. Uh, Let me just say one thing. So many of these ancient pagan nations would have been the modern equivalent of the Nazis. They were wicked, evil people often practicing things like child sacrifice. And so it's not like they were just these friendly, sweet little Mr. Roger neighbors and God said, I don't like them. There's more to the story. Okay, if you have more questions about that, um, ask somebody else later. All right, Um, so let's skip down to verse 8. Okay, Um, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. They utterly destroyed. So they kind of mostly obeyed, but not totally obeyed. Again, that sounds all too familiar, does it not? Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. Just pause there. That doesn't mean God's like, oh, I made a bad decision. I'm sorry. I wish I had done it differently. When it speaks of this God, what it's saying, there's just grief. There's sadness in his heart. I'm sad over King Saul. I'm sad about his disobedience. Okay. Let's keep going. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's never a good sign either. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Now, almost certainly, again, There's a guilty conscience. He knows he's done wrong, but he's trying to kind of get ahead of it and say, everything's fine here, nothing to see, did everything you said. Again, I mean, this sounds like when my kids were younger, coming home sometimes, the way they'd meet me at the door, telling me how wonderful things were, and I knew something was up. Uh, Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen, which I hear? Saul said, they... I've brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. You see the pattern of blame shifting continues. It's not me. I'm just the king. What can I do? It was all the people. It's their fault, not mine. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Right? I mean, we had a great purpose. We were going to have like a big worship service just for you. That's why we kept all the stuff, right? I mean, this would be similar to somebody out there with a gambling addiction, right? It's been rebuked, and they say they're going to stop, and then they go back to the casino, and they say, but I was going to give all my winnings. I was going to tithe. I was going to do faith promise out of the winnings, right? It sounds like a good excuse, but again, it doesn't go over very well. Verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So, oftentimes we want to say, but I know there's this one kind of pet sin in my life that I kind of keep going back to, but look at all the good stuff I'm doing. I came to every night of missions conference. That's got to count for something. Even when my kids had sports. <laughs> and there's a sense in which God says, listen, I don't care as much about the outward trappings, checking all the boxes of doing all the stuff, as I do about real heart surrender and repentance and obedience. And Matthew Henry has this great quote where he says, there's no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God to sin against. See, guys, when, when we primarily think of sin as a breaking of the law, which it is, okay, it's not less than that. It's just more than that. When we sin, it's much less like speeding down the highway and we get a ticket from the cops. Like in the grand scheme of things, who cares, right? Could be a lot worse. Everybody's doing it. It's not that bad. It's a lot more like breaking your wife's heart because you lied to her. That's the way we ought to think about our sin. It's much more of a personal relationship that we're rejecting. Okay? Um, verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So this seems like some genuine repentance starting to happen. Right? And, and he gets to the, kind of the sin behind the sin. Why did I do it? Because I care too much about what people think. And listen, I bet, don't worry, we're not going to do this, but if we just stopped right now and said, hey, we want everybody to come up here and just kind of share the biggest sin you're struggling with, make it quick, what is it, uh, you know, at the surface level, and uh, be awkward, don't worry, I'm not even considering it. Uh, but then, if we went back and said, now, everybody just shared your surface level sin, let's try to talk about what's the sin behind the sin. What's the sin that gets you into that sin? <clears throat> My bet is, for maybe 50% of us, it would be, because I care too much about what people think of me. Right? Now, let's just say somebody got up here and confessed, I don't share my faith enough. There's these people at work or at the gym that I know I should be talking to about Christ, but I'm kind of, why? Because you care about what people think about you. Right? Even, I don't discipline my kids enough. Blah, blah, blah. Because you care too much about what your kids think about you. I mean, just, it, you really want to mature, you really want to grow, you can't just fight sin at the fruit level. You've got to get down to the root. Not just the symptoms, the deep thing. It seems like he's repenting. But look at verse 25. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. What was it that he really cared about? Again, even in his repentance, it wasn't real repentance. He just wanted to look like he was repenting. Please, Samuel, will you go up and talk to the elders with me so I'll look like everything's okay? I would dare say most of us, and all of us have been tempted to this, but most of us, if we get gut level honest, I would rather appear to be godly than actually be godly. Does that make sense? Because the process of really growing in godliness, however old, whatever age and stage you are, is talking to some degree openly and honestly about your sin so you can repent of it and be freed of it and progress in godliness. But if I'm desperately trying to hang on, I just want to appear godly. I can't talk about my sin because then I won't look godly. And therefore, you won't get godly. And just one more thought. And it's not that you'll just stay. You're like, well, I'm, pretty, I'm doing pretty good compared to most people. I mean, turn on the news. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm at least a nice person. If that's your strategy, you won't stay where you're at. You'll go backwards because the stream of culture and just your heart will harden let me give you a really specific example. We had a guy on our staff a few years ago that we had to fire because of some sexual sin. Okay? And really tried to stay involved with him, helping him get plugged into a good church and counseling and all that. And at one point he took a job change, he moved to a new city, he was getting involved in the church. And so I was talking with him, I said, man, have you gotten involved in some kind of men's group or accountability group or you know, something and told them about your past and what you deal with? And he's like, well, no. And I'm like, why not? Because I, I know how this game plays out. If you don't, you're going to go back to the same old stuff. And he said, I, you know, I just joined this brand new church. He's like, I don't want everybody to think I'm a freak show. I was like, I understand that. And I'm not saying you've got to stand up in front of the whole church and confess all your sins. But you ought to find one or two elders or mentors and put all your cards on the table. You, you see the point? But he's like, I'd rather look godly than actually be godly. It's fun to join a new church and say, yeah, I used to work for this ministry. It's no big deal. You know, uh, I'm just in the uh, business world now, but maybe I can lead a Bible study or something. Everybody respects you. That's a lot funner way to join the church than to show up and say, let me tell you why I'm not in ministry anymore. And I need some intensive counseling in my life. But the people that are humble enough to go that route, those are the people that really grow, that really change, that really mature. And Saul was not one of those kind of guys. Flip over to chapter 22. Let's just look at one more example of King Saul. 1 Samuel 22, skip down to verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamin knights, will the son of Jesse, that's David, also give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? So he's trying to buy people's loyalty. Stay loyal to me and I'll make it worth your while. For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. 
And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Now, again, if you know much about the story, here's part I'm trying to say. When you live your life primarily driven by what do people think about me, you are guaranteed going to be on a roller coaster. Because it may be some high highs, but the next day it will be some low lows. And you will eventually start to struggle almost with paranoia and seeing conspiracy theories everywhere. The people are against me. Nobody even told me that my own son has a covenant with David. I mean, just think about how stupid that is. Somebody told him about it because he knows about it. But he's like, nobody told me. Somebody told you. And then he's like, you're all against me. And none of you even care. He can't see the people's hearts. But there's this fear, there's this worry. He just racked with anxiety. It's literally like he's becoming crazy. Sin, taken to his extreme, is insanity. He's consumed with what other people think. It's not working for him. So Saul is a picture of somebody that lives in the fear of what do people think. Even though he was God's man, God's anointed. Now flip back to chapter 16. Now we're going to look at David. 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is where we first get introduced to David when he's anointed to be king. 1 Samuel 16. Skip down to verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Um, And Samuel arose and went to Ramoth. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. And then skip down to verse 23. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Again, a little context. You remember... The prophet goes to anoint the king in this one family, and he gets everybody before him, he thinks. And then he's like, is this everybody? Like, well, no, the runt is out with the sheep, but we didn't bring him in because we don't even think he counts. And like, well, go ahead and get him. And David ends up being the one that's anointed to be king, and the Holy Spirit comes on him in this very powerful way. But this is really interesting. Just try to put yourself in this family situation. You're the youngest of seven, and you've kind of never been treated that great. You get all the bad jobs in the house. And then you find out, like a prophet of God. Okay, we all have to be charismatics here for this illustration to work for just a second, all right? You're you're a 16-year-old teenager. You're a flaming charismatic. And a prophet comes to your house and says, you're going to be the next president of the United States. It's just a matter of time. How do you think your attitude might change in your own household? It's like, hey, I ain't doing any more chores anymore, right? (laughs) Everybody's doing my chores. You be nice to me. You respect me. Maybe I'll put you in the cabinet one day. Not David. Such humility, he just goes back to the sheep. So that when Saul says, I want this guy to come play the harp for me, he's got everything going for him. I mean, he sounds like a Renaissance man already as a teenager. He's like, great. And it wouldn't have taken David very long to put this together. I've been anointed to be king. The Holy Spirit has come upon me in some kind of mighty way. And now I'm here playing the harp for King Saul, and he looks like a raving lunatic. 
And everybody's saying, I mean, he figures out what's going on. And yet, he says, if this is what God has called me to for today, to be humble and serve, I'm happy to do it. Because he's not worried about his appearance, what people think. Okay? The humility of David is really overwhelming. It's certainly one of the secrets to his strength. So let's skip into chapter 17. This is where he meets Goliath. It's a long one. We're going to just, again, read some of the verses. Chapter 17, verse 15. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese, the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. So when he's not serving the demon-possessed king, when he's not taking care of the sheep, he's taking cheese and crackers for his daddy on little, you know, errands. I mean, it, it, it's, it's shocking, really. I mean, if it wasn't in the Word of God, I wouldn't believe it. That somebody could actually have this kind of humility. Verse 22. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And he was talking with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Saul was a fearful leader, and so his people became fearful. Look at the kind of man David's going to be. Verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. So Saul, full of fear, is trying to persuade David. Why don't you just be fearful like the rest of us? Be a normal person. But David's a man of faith. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So he's like, listen, I've done hand-to-hand combat with a lion, with a bear. But notice verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. So look, this isn't about David making a name for himself. He never boasts in, you should see me with a slingshot, man, I'm amazing. Although it's true. What he says is, I'm uber passionate about the glory of God. And that you've got this sicko over there talking bad about Yahweh. I can't stand for it. I'm happy to go fight. Not for my glory, for the name of God. Again, this is rare. A lot of people today love to fight for their own name and fame. David says, I don't care about that. I'm fighting for the glory of God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord, here's his confidence, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. I mean, Saul's almost shocked. Faith wins over fear. Okay, Again, because David wasn't boasting in his own abilities. He was boasting in, hey, God's just done miracles for me before. I'm confident he'll do it again. Skip down to verse 45. Okay. Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." This is what you call holy trash talk, right? He says, I'm going to kill you and chop your head off and kill all your friends. Hey? Sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie or something, right? But Christ-centered Clint Eastwood movie. Verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle. I mean, he's not afraid. The battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand into his bag and he took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. When Saul was in charge, people lived by fear. When David comes to the forefront, the people lived by faith. And they all experienced a victory that day. Chapter 21. One more example of David, okay? Chapter 21. Because I want to make this really practical for us. Chapter 21, skip down to verse 10. This is after David has been serving in Saul's court for a while, but Saul has started trying to persecute him and kill him, so he's on the run. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. Just notice that. We've been doing this compare and contrast, saying, Well, Saul feared people. David feared God, not people. But now he's like, Well, here's a place where David feared somebody. How's this work? Let's keep going. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And he's going to let him go. Now, Flip over to Psalm chapter 34, which was written right after this accident, I mean this incident. I want us to look at it. But as you're turning there, just think about this with me. God's given us brains, and it's not wrong for us to use the brains and the bodies that God has given us. He was put in a seemingly impossible situation. Like, if, if you wake up tonight and there's a crash downstairs and it sounds like somebody's breaking into your house, it's not wrong that all of a sudden there might be a, a jolt of panic going through you. That's just normal. I mean, that's the way your nervous system is built. Now, how you respond matters, right? There, there, there are sinful ways to respond to kind of trying, testing circumstances, and there are righteous ways. And, and ultimately, the righteous thing is, okay, I'm going to trust the Lord, but then I'm going to act. I mean, pl- please don't hear me saying... Saul was a man of action, but he took matters into his own hands, so he's a big sinner. And the way to be holy is just to be passive. That's obviously not true. I mean, David's obviously a man of passion and action. He was one to step forward, fight Goliath. And 
when he thought, I got a legitimate way to get out of this thing, you say, well, couldn't this be a form of deception? He lied. And, and I would say this would be like Corey Timboon and the, the Nazis come and knock on the door and say, you got any Jews here? You don't say yes, okay? And if you're like, well, what's the ethical? Again, ask somebody else, all right? I'm, I'm just saying this. In trying situations, there's nothing wrong with using your brain and your body to take care of yourself as long as you don't cross the line into sin. Right? That's when you get into trouble where you say, like Saul did, I'm so fearful, I'm willing to break a direct command of God to protect myself. That's where you have to say, I won't do that. I'd rather suffer. Okay? Um, give you a couple examples, again, uh, from my kids. I remember one of my sons, this is back when he was in middle school, and he got in an argument with one of his best friends at school. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, the moms start calling each other just the things dads love to jump into the middle of. And so as I'm kind of, you know, dialoguing with him what had happened, what had been said, and, you know, it was reported back that he had said this to one of his friends, which I knew the statement that he had made. It's just an absolute farce, right? And I asked him, I said, son, did you say this to your friend? He said, yeah. I said, buddy, you know that's not true. He said, I know, Dad. I said, then why did you say it? He said, Dad, it was all I had. He said, and what he was saying is, he was saying, my buddy was kind of attacking me with all these kind of jabs, and I had to get one in on him. So I just made up something that sounded really good at the lunchroom table. Now listen, you can, you can have compassion and understand how a little middle school boy would get there at the lunch table, right? But it's not justifiable. One of my other sons, one time, in a conversation with his dad, okay, at the dinner table at some point said something really disrespectful. And, and this doesn't always happen, but by God's grace, I had a spirit-filled moment. And I was like, buddy, why are you saying that? I mean, you, you know that's terribly disrespectful. Why are you saying that? And he said, Dad, I feel like I had to say it to defend myself. Oh, oh, then it's fine. But, but we are so quick to give ourselves a pass when we feel kind of pressed against the wall and fearful to do sinful things. So here's the question I'm really wanting us to wrestle with. When we are placed in a trying circumstance with a family member, with a friend, with an employee, employer, whatever, and there's the temptation to lie, to sin, to disobey, what is it in that moment that can make you say, no, no, I'm going to be a person of faith, not a person of fear? Okay. So let's look at this psalm briefly. We're not going to look at the whole thing. There's really just one thing I want us to see. Okay. Psalm chapter uh, 34, if you read the title, it was written after what we just read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. So he's boasting. Where's his confidence? In the Lord, not in himself. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So here's the first kind of nugget. When you're facing a really trying circumstance, one of the best things you can do is think back to other trying circumstances you've been in in your life and how the Lord delivered you from those specific circumstances. Remind yourself of your own history, and it will kind of give you a jolt of confidence in God in the midst of the present one. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. And one Old Testament commentator said, it's kind of like God shows up in a mobile home and just goes everywhere with his people. 
And if Old Testament saints know that, New Testament saints ought to know it all the more. Right? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There ought to be a confidence. God is with me. Do you, do you remember the story when uh, uh, the Syrians got sick of Elisha kind of getting, hearing all the words from the Lord and telling their battle plans to the kings and losing the battle? And so they sent a whole army to arrest Elisha. And Elisha's servant wakes up and he goes out to get some water in the morning. And he's like, hey, boss, we got a problem. You know, there's a whole army surrounding us. And Elisha's like, there's no problem. And in a sense, the servant's like, I see a problem. I mean, I help me understand how there's not a problem. And Elisha prays and says, God, will you open the eyes of my servant that he can see those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. And then he can see the, the army angels of fire. Right? Now, I've always wondered this. I wonder if Elisha could see the angelic armies of fire, or if he couldn't see them, he just knew they were there. That, that should be our confidence, right? Christ is with me in this situation. So it's his presence, meditating on that. But then one more thing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is so important, especially for Presbyterians to hear. Mental, academic, intellectual knowledge in and of itself is not enough. It can't just be seeing, it has to be tasting and seeing. It can't just be the knowledge of God's love and presence, it has to be an experience of God's love and presence, right? The knowledge of His love and presence works in Sunday school when it's time to answer the question right. The knowledge alone, when the trial and the test comes, doesn't help you pass the test because you revert to what you feel in the moment. But if there has been kind of a sweet tasting of the goodness of God in your life and His Word, when the trial and the pressure comes on, you can say, I trust Him. I trust Him. Although it feels like all these circumstances are arrayed against me, I trust Him. So guys, that, that's why we want to learn to go deep in our prayer life so we can taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. This is just the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. Okay. So one very fast story. And we'll be done. Okay? Uh, and one commentator said about this passage, he said, listen, this is more than a casual sampling. It's like when you eat the best food and you don't want it to go away, so you roll it around on your tongue so you can taste it longer. That, that's what your time alone in the Lord reading the Word ought to be. I'm rolling this stuff around with taste buds in my soul so I really drink it in. Talking to a friend, he's going through a lot of hardship. It's hard in his family of origin. It's hard in his immediate family. It's hard with his friends. It's hard with his job. It's like everything's hard in his life. And right now he's really trying to find another job. So I'm talking to him and it's been tough. And I said, listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this. God's plans for you are good. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to be good. And we've got a good enough friendship. Well, he's like, man, you don't know that. And just This is not some pagan, stupid college student. Okay? This is a guy in his 30s that's a member of this church. He's like, you don't know that. And I get sick of people telling me because you don't know that. And I said, yes, I do know that. He's like, no, you don't know that. I said... Yes, I do, because the promise of Romans 8.28 is if you're in Christ, eventually it's going to work out for your good. And he's like, yeah, 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 I know that. But it's not going to be the good stuff I want. You know, I love his honesty, right? Because <laughs> what he's saying is, you know, it's like, I want a new wife. I want a new job. I want more money. 
He's like, you can't promise me that stuff. You're like, you're right. I can't promise you that. God doesn't promise you that. But here's the key. If you start to value the things that God values, which is primarily conforming you to the image of Christ and giving you the fruit of the Spirit and this intimate worship experience with Him, if you value that above all things, then you can live with the confidence He's going to do good for you. So, last thought, we're done. You know, a minute ago I kind of said, preach your own history to yourself, remind yourself of times when God has come through for you before. And some of you, I don't know where you might be in the faith, you might say, I'll be honest, I don't know if I've got any great examples of God answering prayers and coming through for me. So when I try to remind myself of my history, it's pretty dadgum bleak. My, my history actually doesn't help me that much. Well, you're just not going far enough back in your history. Because if you're in Christ, what the Bible says, because you've been joined to Him, that part of your spiritual history is the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in your place, losing the experience of the love of the Father for you, for me, so that you could always have the experience of the love of the Father. And you remind yourself of that, and you meditate on it. It ought to be enough to say, I won't fear men. I'll fear God no better. God, give us wisdom and give us worship to be able to taste and see these things and then apply them in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.